Hey, Flaunt Squad, welcome to Flaunt Performance, the podcast for the voluptuous runner. And our motto is all bodies are built to run. You can go to flauntperformance.com to pick up 10 laws of power for the voluptuous runner. And that is free. That's 10 laws of power for the voluptuous runner. I'm sorry if you hear some stuff in the background. Look, I'm a mom and my daughter's in the background. I told her to stop making noise and she's still making noise. She's four. So I apologize. (laughs) I apologize for that. But we have a good show today. Dr. Chen from the Running Institute is going to tell us so much about our feet. How are your feet doing, Flaunt Squat? Does that make sense? Is that grammatically correct? How are your feet doing, Flaunt Squat? How are those feet, Flaunt Squad? (laughs) Are you taking care of them? When was the last time you had a medical pedicure? When was the last time you visited a podiatrist? When was the last time you checked on your feet to make sure they're in tip-top health? And what about cross-training? We talk about so much on this show and it's so informative. I'm so grateful that Dr. Chen took time out of his schedule to join us. So sit back and listen to Dr. Chen from the Running Institute. And special thanks to DJ Stack Chip for providing the music. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chen. Thank you for having me. It is such an honor to have you on the show. Can you tell us something about the Running Institute? We had another doctor on the show from the Runner Inst- Running Institute, and we'd like to know more about what you do over there. Sure. So uh, the Running Institute was founded uh, back in 2008 uh, as a function of you know seeing athletes who were you know in particular runners uh, trying to find a place that could seek. Uh, healthcare holistically. So from a internal medicine standpoint, from a podiatric foot and ankle standpoint, and also from a chiropractic standpoint, nutritional uh, aspects, we kind of developed this um, kind of holistic approach to treating the running athletes. So uh, it's been great. We've been, you know, just a, uh, again, over eight years, almost eight years now in Chicago and uh, Chicago is a great running community. There's uh, increases in uh, the number of runners every year. It seems like so. It's been it's been a great run. Is that why you went after the runners because Chicago has such a great running community? It is. I, you know, I volunteered at the Chicago Marathon when I was a student back in 1995. Uh, when that uh, kind of volunteerism uh spurned just an interest in love for runners you know obviously there's um you know people out there trying to maintain a level of health Uh, there's certainly a you know an ease to it you can buy a pair of running shoes at uh, the local sporting goods store and a pair of shorts and get out there Um, there's so many programs that have been developed over the years that have trained you know 5k couch potato 5k to you know, couch potato to marathoning. So uh, I think just the amount of people that are out there, it, it was to service a need and to also understand that athletes have a certain mindset in terms of not wanting to take time off, not wanting to, you know, have necessarily surgery. And, you know, our clinic can offer a lot of those things that, 
keep people out there running healthily without having the downtime. Let's talk about that because with runners, there is a mentality. We, we, have, we have some kind of crazy mindset where we don't want to take <laughs> we don't want to take any time off. How do we know whether or not we're aggravating injuries? I uh, usually use the three-day rule which is if something's bothering you for more than three days, that's something that should be looked at. Um, if you have trouble with running through pain, um, that is obviously not a good thing. If you're taking a lot of medications to stave off pain, that's not a good sign. But the three-day rule is kind of the, the baseline that I use as a benchmark as to when somebody should come in and seek medical help because it could be a fracture. It could be a, a stress fracture or a tendon uh, pathology or tendonitis. So you do want to make sure that, again, to keep you out there longer, the last thing you want to do is have an injury that's going to keep you from uh, achieving that goal. What are some of the main injuries that you see at the Running Institute? Uh, plantar fasciitis is probably one of the top ones. Uh, I'd say that sits at our top of the list. Uh, neuromas, you know, nerve impingements, uh, tendonitis, like Achilles tendonitis, uh, stress fractures of the metatarsals, sometimes stress fractures of the heel or even of the uh, long bone of the leg, the tibia. Uh, shin splints are probably the, the ones that top off the, the list. Um, and we see all ages, all um, patient sizes, and um, certainly the, you know, the big thing that we see is an overuse type you know, scenario that's happened doesn't matter what level of activity. Um, it could be a beginner. It could be an advanced runner who is running into these uh, conditions. When you say overuse, that means running, doing the same motion over and over. Is that the issue usually? Cor correct. Yeah, they're um, maybe running four or five days a week. Uh, they're not cross-training. They're not allowing their body to recuperate with rest. And that's been a uh, that's been a big talking point, I think, in the running community, such as, you know, some of the magazine outlets that are out there talking about the recovery and the, the rest is just as important as the time that you put in to train. And if you're overutilizing a structure, it's going to continue to break down and the reparative process to, to help it, you know, bring back the normal structure of tissue or bone is just not there. What kind of cross-training should we be doing? Uh, swimming is a good cross-training tool. Uh, weightlifting is a phenomenal weight, uh, you know, tool for, strangely enough, bone density. You know, we don't think of, you know, slow, heavy weightlifting as a, as a uh, benefit for bone, but it actually helps generate better bone density in the body, more so than running. Running, actually, if you look at runners on, on the whole, uh, sometimes have weaker, more brittle bones because, again, that load of your body is not being uh, produced enough. It's, you know, again, a repetitive stress, but it's not loading the bone enough in a longer, you know, period of time in one setting uh, to create new bone. So, you know, weightlifting, the muscle building certainly is a casing around the bone to create more blood flow. So I think, you know, we, we all tend to get away from uh, the lifting side because obviously we're looking at then somebody who's getting more bulk. But I think if you do, you know, look at weightlifters, in general, their bone density has a better, you know, um, uh, composite overall. I have heard that 
Um, some older runners do not like to do the weightlifting because they feel like it's going to slow them down. Is that a myth? I think that's a myth. I think that's a myth. If you're doing things, you know, again, everything is in moderation, right? I mean, the best medicine is moderation. And when you have a person who's uh, doing speed work and you're doing, um, you know, your longer distances and you're adding in and peppering in the weightlifting, I think, uh, as personal trainers would say, is that they actually have a better chance of maintaining their speed and their uh, the pop in their step and things like that versus it's slowing them down. Now, I had to do a little bit of research <laughs> on these topics, Dr. Chin, because sure. I hate to say that I have never been to a podiatrist. After years of running, I've never been been to a podiatrist. So I'm a little bit ashamed, but I found so much good information. <laughs> I found so much good information out there, like the gluteal muscles. I hear that we really need to make sure our gluteal muscles are in good condition because mm-hmm. they help to strengthen our feet and ankles. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, you rely less, interestingly enough, on your foot and ankle if you have good hip structure. If you have a good hip structure, like you know, uh, glute medius, glute max, um, you rely less on those you know smaller muscles in the foot and ankle to um, to stabilize. So we, we see, obviously, um, in our female patient population, uh, maybe a little bit of a weaker hip and gluteal uh, structure um, based on just the body, you know, body shape, the spinal shape, the pelvic you know, shape. Um, guys may engage maybe in sports that are more lateral movement, like, uh, albeit again, you know, women in basketball now, it's obviously you see a lot more of the lateral movement sports, but uh, as, you know, history has it, you know, guys were participating in those, you know, certainly at a higher level uh, for a longer period of time, and the hip strength certainly was was there. I think now the focus with, you know, conditioning and strength and, you know, conditioning coaches at the collegiate level, they get it. They understand that the hip strength is so important. Um, I happen to know a physical therapist who worked with uh, University of Tennessee and a a medical physician or a medical doctor out at uh, Stanford. And that's actually where a lot of their studies are kind of being driven towards is uh, the female athlete and reducing, for example, like an ACL tear or um, IT band or iliotibial band syndrome, where, again, there's a higher prevalence of those uh, in female athletes than they're on the male athlete. And they're finding that injury prevention has been much better uh, in terms of staving off those types of injury with hip strength. So for the runners who are at home or if they just go to the park to run, what are some exercises they can do that don't involve weightlifting, maybe some body strength exercises? Sure. Um, Simple ones would be doing like a karaoke type uh, running step where it's kind of a side to side crossover. Um, Doing things, uh, for example, like even getting out and doing lunges and you twist at the top and you kind of lunge forward, you're getting kind of hip and gluteal strength with that. Uh, Running backwards, you know, even if it's for like 25 meters, running backwards can actually engage those hip hip muscles. Um, Things that are dynamic warm-ups, and there's so many that are out there, but, you know, working on those to kind of take somebody who's maybe been sitting for a majority of the day and then getting those muscles activated and warmed up before they actually go out for a run. 
is really important, and they do. They engage those muscles that have not been activated. We sit on our bottom, obviously, for you know eight hours a day. The muscle is not going to want to fire. It's not going to want to do a whole lot of anything. So uh, dynamic warm-ups are a really great way of kind of getting those muscles to warm up, but then also as an exercise, just you know, just as if you were uh, doing a kind of a cross-training workout, uh, they work great. What type of exercises can we do to strengthen our feet? Um, certainly walking barefoot is one of the things that, you know, helps. Walking barefoot. Uh, if you're close. Yeah. So if you're walking, for example, like on a beach, right? What happens typically to your foot when you walk through that sand is it sometimes feels sore. Just like if you're doing a bicep curl, your arms are going to feel sore after you're doing that bicep curl. So when you walk in kind of a sandy or kind of a, you know, a low impact area, it actually engages that muscle. It engages that arch, and you start to gain a little bit more of that muscle structure. Um, you know, doing things where, for example, wearing shoes that may be a little bit less supportive, like a Nike Free, uh, could be helpful. The tricky part is is that, you know, when people do it, they do it for a long stretch. So they're going to do it for maybe, you know, walking for an hour. Maybe it's their commute. They're walking maybe four or five blocks for their commute. And the arches get really sore, and they're wondering why. Well, so you have to kind of build up to it, just like you don't go out and just pop off twenty bicep curls on your first, you know, first time doing a bicep curl. You have to kind of ease into it, and sometimes that means that you're only going to be walking for maybe a block or two before you switch out the shoes and put something else on to give your foot a chance to recuperate. Um, I, there, there are some products out there called the Foot Gym. Um, I've seen them on Amazon, for example, and uh, they're almost like a little, you know, rubber band exercise uh, program for the arch. Uh, I think it's a little aggressive to have somebody just do that unless they have, for example, a specific injury to the arch. So, you know, simple things like walking at least a little bit barefoot on a surface that's less hard. You wouldn't want to do that on concrete. You wouldn't want to do that on a hardwood surface per se. But uh, giving your foot a little bit of freedom from a shoe actually can help build, uh, build the intrinsics. That is so interesting because a couple of weeks ago, I listened to an NPR story. They were talking about this, and they were saying that some runners even prefer running barefoot. What do you think about that? Yeah, we saw an influx of runners when the uh, height of that was taking place. So, you know, there's always going to be the extremes, right? There's going to be a possibility of people having complete utter pain relief with running barefoot. But I would say that we saw a number of patients, I would say probably in the hundreds, if not thousands of patients over the past five years, where they tried running barefoot and it did not work. And they developed things like Achilles tendonitis or tendon tears or plantar fascial tears or stress fractures. So there's not one great thing that is out there that's going to just eliminate foot pain, eliminate injury. Um, Again, taking things in moderation. I've run barefoot before. I've gone out, I do a block, I come back, and I'm like, okay, that that was interesting. Go out the next time, do two blocks, and kind of build up to it. And unfortunately, most of us want to just have the quick fix. So we're just going to go out and run maybe in three miles, barefoot. And it just does not work like that. You have to build up. And it sometimes will take seven to nine months to really build a, a good, solid base and feel for running barefoot. Um, I have a really good friend of mine who runs barefoot, but if I try to go out there and run barefoot, I think I would be really, you know, hurting myself. And the elements are always a little bit tricky 
you know, if it's cold, if it's, you know, uh, if you're running in an area where there's, you know, asphalt and rocks, I mean, it really is not very comfortable. Uh, so you have to wear some type of protective layer on your foot, and that really takes away the essence of barefoot running. It's not as true as really running without a shoe on. And that's actually been noticed in literature and, and certainly in studies that having a, a layer of, for example, like even a five-finger shoe is different than that if you're running truly barefoot without a without a shoe on at all. So can I put my stamp of approval on barefoot running? I would say it would only be if you're willing to take an excessive amount of time to learn how to barefoot run would be the only way that I could, you know, suggest it. Uh, most people don't have that kind of time or the, you know, the want to necessarily change in that extreme. So people are going to run in shoes that are more catering towards the elements, the, the rough surfaces, the hard surfaces. What kind of form should we have if we're running barefoot? If you're running barefoot, there's a natural kind of bend to the knee. Uh, there's certainly a more um, kind of, I would say, pelvic uh, positioning that's going to be a little bit more vertical and upright. Um, you're going to have, certainly posture-wise, you know, maybe a little bit better posture in terms of your spine running barefoot. But, you know, the the idea is to actually have a higher cadence so the amount of steps per minute or beats per minute are going to be higher, closer to 180 beats per minute, uh, which eliminates maybe the striking on the heel. Um, it's not leaning so far forward that you're running just solely on the ball of your foot. Um, you also want to you know, kind of maintain a, uh, like I said, a good posture where uh, you're not leaning back onto your heel because obviously then you're going to be heel striking. So you know, when you're walking barefoot, and most people would suggest even walking barefoot to start. How do you how do you walk barefoot? You almost walk like you're marching, versus you know striding out and walking like if you're walking with a pair of shoes on. So then you translate that to running. So start out with some basic things such as you know walking barefoot, and then see how that translates then into your running, and use that maybe for the first you know three four weeks as your baseline. Wow. All right. Let's go back to the shoes because I'm pretty sure, sure many of our listeners would rather run in shoes. But that is that's really fascinating. When yeah. you mentioned landing on the ball of your feet versus the heel, if we have on shoes, which one is healthier? If you're going to wear a shoe, how do I answer this? So people naturally are wearing a shoe that has a little bit of a higher or a thicker heel. To that relationship of the ball of the foot so it's almost like wearing a wedge right and for somebody to then move from that shoe to something that's flatter you know there's a lot of shoes that are what we call minimal shoes or what they call zero drop which means that the heel is the same height as the uh, ball of the foot if you take a person who's running in a shoe that's got an elevation say it's a 16 millimeter elevation it takes a lot to learn how to run in a shoe that's actually a zero drop. And again, you know, taking maybe a, a couple months to get used to just even walking in a shoe like that versus running in it. And so to choose a shoe, obviously, how, how we've been you know, taught over the years is, you know, what is your foot shape? How does that fit in a shoe? How does it feel? You know, does it feel good? Does it feel horrible? Like even the best looking shoe for your foot 
being the stability levels and the cushion levels may not be the right shoe for you if your foot is actually painful in that shoe. So there's, you know, there's another element of, is it the right support? Is it the right cushion? Is it the right fit? Is it the right feel? So, you know, a lot of the shoe companies have addressed those details because there's so many new shoes on the market. You can find a pretty, you know, wide variety of shoes that may may or may not work. So I don't know if that answered your question, but um, shoes are such a complex component of running that each person's going to have a different need and a different feel. Yeah, it really does answer my question. It makes me think that, okay, so I'm running, I run in a stability shoe, but I noticed that over time they've started making these shoes less cushiony. So Mm -hmm. does stability mean less cushion? And if it means less cushion, is it wise to put insoles in stability shoes? Am I losing the stability? Right. So stability doesn't typically equal less cushioning. Um, The materials have changed over the years and certainly, you know, they're trying to maintain a lighter shoe. Uh, And with that shoe being lighter, um, do you lose some stability? So that's one question. Do you lose some stability? And sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no. Uh, If the shoe is worn out, and say you've gotten a lot of mileage on that shoe, that could be one of the reasons why the shoe is less cushiony. That it's almost like taking a marshmallow that's been left out, you know, in in the air, and when you squeeze that marshmallow the first time, it's pretty pliable and mushy. But then when you take that marshmallow and, you know, leave it out, it's going to dry up, and when you press it, it's going to stay pressed in. So shoes have that same type of material compression, and sometimes they can actually stay compressed as the shoe gets older. And each shoe company has a different age in which that shoe starts to lose its uh, cushionability. Uh, some shoe companies, it's two to three months. Sometimes it's six months. So depending on the depending on the brand and the model, it can be it can be a much faster uh, return in terms of needing to get a new shoe to replace the old one. Who needs firm shoes versus um, cushiony shoes? Uh, firmer shoes, I would say, are people who may have a lot more mobility to their foot, where they become more hypermobile, meaning that their foot goes any which way. And they need a little bit more structure to kind of create a, a, a nice platform to push off from. Somebody who's, uh, you know, a higher arch foot type, somebody who's got a more rigid foot structure, uh, may need more cushioning to kind of dampen the blow when they land on their foot. Because they're much more rigid than, again, somebody who's got a very loose foot structure. So, you know, those those typically are the the directions that I would point patients into if they're looking for a shoe that you know fits their foot. I try to give them a, a list of options that would uh, would follow follow that suit. We have a question that kind of goes with that. A question from the audience. Jennifer Moore wants to know. Can proper arch support prevent knee replacements? We talked about knee replacements prior to the show, but can proper arch <laughs> support in shoes prevent knee replacements? Uh, so, Jennifer, that's that's a good question. Um, there are some studies out there that show that if you have a proper fitting support, 
that's actually wedged in the proper direction that you could actually minimize the arthritis on the joint, which then would lead to the tendency for uh, a knee replacement. So arthritis, the knee is worn out, um, the cartilage is no longer present, and the knee replacement takes place. Uh, we do have custom orthotic devices that can help adjust the pressures on the knee so that you don't lean so heavily into that particular spot. And it is a specialty. Um, not or all orthotics are made the same. And when we look at orthotic devices, the cushion, the materials, and things like that, it's as technical as, uh, as a running shoe. So just pulling a device off the shelf, not to name names, but you know some of the off-the-shelf devices are uh, you know made to create an arch support. But again, if it's not put in the proper position, that could actually maybe put more stress on the knee. So you always want to look at somebody uh, who has a background in biomechanics, who has a really good pulse on orthotics and materials. And I would say in the case of, you know, uh, podiatry in, in my specialty is that somebody understands the sports medicine and the athlete. Uh, you don't want to just go to any old um, physician who does orthotics because they may put you on something that's really rigid and that may agitate the knee. Let's talk about those knees because we're dealing with a plus size running community. And I don't, we always get this. I don't care if you're a smaller plus size runner or a larger plus size runner. I think runners get this anyway, but it might be more Absolutely. so to plus size runners. Knee health. Uh, is it a myth that plus size runners have more knee injuries than smaller runners? You know, I see patients of, like I said, all shapes and sizes. And I, I would say that there is a even distribution amongst my patients with knee problems. You know, again, my focus is foot and ankle, but we do share patients uh, with our internal medicine, sports medicine doc, and certainly our chiropractic physician about, you know, treating things above the chain, above the ankle, for example. Um, so is there an increase in knee issues with my um, with my you know larger size patients I would say no um, there's certainly you know something that is of concerning is obviously the load and the impact on the knees um, and again being in the proper position you know whether it's the shoe wear or whether it's the um, the orthotic device and what I find is that automatically patients when they're at a certain weight, they're automatically put into a stability or motion control shoe. And I think that's actually the wrong answer. The shoe should be based on what their foot structure is like. doesn't matter if you're, you know, in a heavier runner. shouldn't matter if you're a lighter runner. But, you know, invariably what I hear from, you know, some of the running shoe uh, stores that, you know, when a patient goes and buys their shoes, that they're like, yeah, they put me in this really heavy monster of a stability motion control shoe. I look at their foot, and they actually have a really high arch foot type. You have to really kind of pick the right, you know, equipment, and the orthotic kind of follows suit. Do you need something that's super rigid for somebody who's a heavier runner, you know, a, a plus size runner? And that's not always the case. You need something that may be a little bit softer, disperse that pressure, take the pressures away. So size does not have anything to do with it. You know, it's what your foot structure is like. You know, how does that shoe fit? 
Does it feel comfortable when you put that shoe on and actually take it out for a run? You should have the ability to take the shoe out for a good two weeks and test it out. And if your knees are bothering you, then bring that shoe back in. If you're having knee pain beforehand, that may be a little bit of a different story. But if you developed a knee pain after starting with a pair of running shoes that were, you know, fit and sized and, you know, appropriated for you, then that's a problem. Then you shouldn't have that type of reactivity in the first, you know, two weeks or so of your running. Wow. Wow. Stability shoes. I did not know that they usually give stability shoes to plus size runners. Maybe that's why they put me in a stability shoe. Maybe that's why they just put me in a stability shoe. I don't know. But I do have an ankle injury. I don't know if that has anything to do with. And it may be the proper shoe for you. Everyone is, you know, just like, you know, God made us. We're all different, right? And we all have different structures. I have a really flat arch foot. You know, I don't have a really high arch foot type. And my knee pain is, you know, I, I would say probably more degenerative because of the way that my arch is. And I didn't have orthotics when I was growing up. I didn't have orthotics until really I was in grad school. So, you know, just kind of knowing the, you know, the shoes and the options that are out there, there's so many different combinations. It's in the hundreds of thousands of combinations that you can have. And not everyone fits into that one peg, right? We're all, we're all individuals. And, uh, and I think that's what, you know, as, as a physician, I realize that more and more that you, know, you can't just peg somebody into, the, uh, into a hole because, you know, they're, you know, they're a plus size runner. So that's very true. How often should we be buying shoes? The average has been about four months, five months, usually based on mileage, but you know, sometimes, again, the shoe companies have realized, I, I would say, that, um, you know, that a shoe has a certain lifespan. And, you know, they like certainly making money. <laughs> so they're going to have a shoe that breaks down. They're not going to want to have a shoe that lasts for a year. So most shoes, I would say, four months is about that, you know, point of replacement. Um, some of the shoe companies, like I mentioned earlier, may take longer to break down. Uh, some of them are shorter, and I would say that there are uh, there aren't really good resources for that. I'd have to say uh, sometimes the running uh, magazines will have maybe a little bit of a you know blurb on you know say for example it's in a particular model, and they say well this may only last you two months. Like racing flats will last you maybe a month to two months. Super lightweight shoes are going to last for about a month to two months if you're wearing those on a very regular basis. So we have, you know, people who get out there to race in a, uh, in a, a racing flat. They may only use it maybe a handful of times. And they, you know, cast them to the side and they, you know, buy a new pair. But average running shoe, four months, I'd say. Okay. And in between buying those shoes, how often should we be visiting our podiatrist? You, Dr. Chen. <laughs> Well, we aren't dentists, so you know, come to us every <laughs> so it's not months. at twice a That's year. That's a bummer. Like I love my patients, but you know they're typically, thankfully, they're not coming here that often. But um, I would say probably if you have a condition, you're probably going to see the you know the foot and ankle you know physician, the podiatrist in this case, um, probably you know once every you know month to two months uh, during the course of the injury. Um, if we're looking at somebody who doesn't have an injury and we're looking at injury prevention, you know, maybe it's, you know, once a year. And just kind of taking a, uh, a look at 
has anything changed? Has there been any discomfort that's come about? Is there something that's, you know, as you lose weight, for example, as the plus runner loses weight, things change too. And maybe the, you know, orthotic elements and the supportive elements or the shoes will change as a function of that. So you do have to be mindful of, you know, uh, if there's, you know, big fluctuations that we have to be able to kind of accommodate that. Stride length. I wanted to talk about this a little while ago. The stride length. Mm-hmm. What does that have to do with causing or preventing injury? So if you overstride, meaning that the legs are really far apart when you're trying to run, say, for example, like you're, you're taking long steps, right, just walking, and realize that when you take a long step like that, your heel is going to hit first. So shortening the stride length will reduce then the impact on the heel, which is basically kind of almost like a, a knob that will send a wave of you know shock going up through the leg to the knee, to the back, to the hip. Um, if you have a situation where you shorten your stride, sometimes what ends up happening, though, is that you end up running like a pogo stick where you're running up and down. You know, so that's not good either because you're not moving very far and you're losing a lot of energy. So the best way of kind of describing it is actually running as if you're kicking your butt. Um, so you really kind of accentuate the backward kind of swing of your leg to kind of try to kick the back side of your you know rear end um, to create then a better stride. So you know it's not that you're reaching too far forward, but you're actually kind of getting that wheel to turn over, almost like if you're pedaling a bike. You want to get that foot back around and kind of swing back around so that you can get down to putting the pedal down uh, faster. So that's uh, that's where that exercise running backwards comes in play because you're actually using a muscle then to try and generate that kind of circular movement of your foot hitting the ground and coming back up again. If we're using the running backward as a way to train, can that also help to prevent Achilles tendon problems? It can. Yeah, because you're using that muscle group in a different activity. Um, you're kind of warming it up, you know, to a point where it's actually loading the Achilles tendon without um, kind of the spring off, for example, when you're running forward. So I do think that that muscle group actually does work better when you get it to move in that direction and hopefully then preventing the Achilles tendon stuff from happening. Dr. Chen, what is pain memory? What is pain memory? I don't know if I've ever heard that term. I, I've heard that. Have, I've heard doctors. I may have to look this one up. I could take a, I could take a stab at it, no pun intended. But um, <laughs> So pain memory could be something that, for example, like if somebody has pain or discomfort and though everything else is physically fine, maybe the structure itself is um, healed, it's Achilles tendonitis or plantar fasciitis, the patients have a hard time kind of getting over the pain factor that psychologically speaking, that they still have pain. So we have had some patients where, for example, you know, they're structurally sound. Um, they're nervous to get back out there. They're kind of remembering what it was like to have pain. And psychologically, they need to get over that hump. And, you know, there's sports psychologists, for example, that have, you know, practices that are really built on this, that, you know, they the the athlete can't seem to get through this fact that they had pain 
that's a stab. I, I, I have not heard pain memory um, being used, but that's what I would kind of equate it to when we're talking about an athlete. Okay. And when you say that, I kind of think of Derek Rose, but I'm not going to get into <laughs> I'm not going to get into that, but that was <laughs> that was my assumption about him. Okay, so now there's, I there's, understand. There's a couple of Chicago athletes that I think may be in that same boat, but I won't say names. <laughs> right. Well, so. I'm sorry, Derek. I, I put your name out there. I apologize. <laughs> Ho- hopefully, hopefully, there's that is you know his staff is not right. Maybe. Know. <laughs> Maybe they won't listen. <laughs> but um, now let's get into the aesthetics. Our feet. We're ladies. Most of yes. us on the show. And this whole toenail falling off thing. People see that as a badge of honor. Some people don't. But medical <laughs> pedicures. What should we expect at a medical pedicure? And can medical pedicures prevent toenails from falling off? Um, I would say that if the nails are difficult to trim and they're long um, and they need to be reduced, then I would say a medical pedicure certainly can help in that direction Um, because it's like the nail is hitting the tip of the shoe and the tip of the shoe is causing the nail trauma. So, yes, I would say that there's a benefit to having a medical professional do it versus a pedicurist because the instrumentation that we use is different um, the sterilization is different. There's, you know, there's definitely some, uh, hygienic things that, you know, not all pedicures places are bad, but, uh, definitely, you know, when we have an autoclave that we use to sterilize our instruments, that's a different, you know, way of killing off whatever it may be, if it's a nail fungus in this case, um, shoes and the size and the fit of the shoe is going to be a big part. And when you lose toenails, it's either the shoe is too short or the shoe is too big. And how do you know what is a proper fit for a shoe? So I use what we call the thumbnail test. We actually press down on the very tip of the shoe, and as long as it's the width of your uh, thumbnail, you're probably in the right size shoe. Now, there are shoe companies or running shoe stores that will size you almost a size and a half larger. Um, If that's the case, I would actually consider buying the shoes in the evening when your foot is actually at, at its max size so that you know kind of an idea as to how big your foot really needs to, or how big your shoe really needs to be. Or go after a run and say, listen, this is my foot after it's been really pretty maxed out, and how does that shoe feel on my foot at the time that I purchase it? What should we expect at a medical pedicure? If it's not the same as just going to get a pedicure, what's the difference? Um, I would say you're not, well... I take this back. I mean, there are some medical pedicures that do apply nail polish and things like that. Um, If you were to come to our practice, it's pretty basic. We do have uh, instrumentation where we can take the nail down to a very flesh point. If it's a really thick nail, uh, we have um, instrumentation like almost a burr that can actually burr down the nail so it's flush. Um, We put on a softening agent to kind of take away the brittleness of the nail so that when we're cutting, it's not just chipping off. And I would say the other thing is, is that we can manage, if, for example, there is a fungal infection, we can also offer treatment options for that, as well as looking at if there's a, an infection infection, like a bacterial infection, we can manage that. Whereas if you go to a, you know, a place that does just nails as for aesthetics, say they cut into the skin or they cause you know, some type of skin reaction or rash, they can't treat it. So they end up at our office. And treating something that's acutely inflamed or painful or infected 
uh, can affect the way that that nail grows uh, moving forward. So if we can head that off of the pass and not have you know, the potential for an infection develop or the potential of a rash develop, um, I think the patients obviously appreciate that a lot. Dr. Chen, how can people get in contact with you? You've given us so much information, and I know yeah, people uh, need to run into the Running Institute right now, but how can people get <laughs> in contact it. with you? So uh, a couple ways. Our website is therunninginstitute.com. Um, our phone number is 312-977-1179. We're right in the heart of Millennium Park in Chicago. Um, we are literally at every bus line, every train line crossing. Uh, we're right in the loop and pretty easily accessible. Um, so yeah, those are probably the best ways to reach us. Uh, if you're if you're looking for more information, we do have a new website that's being launched, and we'll have a lot of resources on there. We're going to have uh, shoe lists. Um, we'll have the dynamic warm ups on there. We'll have. Um, some of the things that we do here in the office that are non-invasive and talk about orthotics and have, uh, you know, have ways to treat patients without having, again, that downtime. So um, that's probably our best best way of getting the information out there is uh, through our website. But um, certainly if you have something that's more pressing, give us a call. Uh, I have two, uh, two other docs that work with me uh, on the podiatric side, and they're just, uh, they're great. Dr. Riley, Sepna Riley, and Dr. Uh, Robert Ardell, um, both are just um, fantastic docs, and they round out our practice really well. Thank you so much for being on Flaunt Performance. Dr. Chen, you've given us a wealth of knowledge. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. 